This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Here are a few of the words you might use to describe what's happening in Ukraine right now. You might call it an incursion of Russian troops. Maybe the beginning of an invasion. But one word some are resisting using, so far at least, is war. This is not the all-out nightmare scenario we were fearing. Josh Keating covers global security for the news site Grid. It was always clear that if a war started, that Donetsk and Luhansk, these two breakaway regions, would be the kind of tripwire for it. It's less clear that it's how that conflict's going to end. Separatists in Donetsk and Luhansk have been fighting to join Russia for years. And Josh says when Vladimir Putin recognized the so-called independence of these regions on Monday and then sent what he calls peacekeeping troops in to defend them, he was pulling out a page from a familiar playbook. Russia has traditionally used these kind of frozen conflicts or breakaway regions as a way to, you know, sort of expand Russia's influence in its region. Uh, It's what they did in Georgia in 2008. There were these two breakaway regions there, and they basically sort of goaded Georgia into attacking them first, which then gave Russia all the pretext it needed to launch an all-out invasion. This time, I think Russia was trying to kind of do the same operation, but the difference is that Ukraine hasn't taken the bait so far. If you look at a map of these regions, you can see they've got a seam down the middle of them. That's the front line where Ukraine and Russia have been battling for control. It's emblematic of the divided public opinion here, though you don't hear about it so often. About half of the people polled in Donetsk and Luhansk have actually said they want to remain as part of Ukraine. To the degree that we can judge what people there want, I think they want an end to the fighting. And so in some ways, you know, this, what they have now is almost the worst of both worlds because they're not fully part of Ukraine or fully part of Russia. They're going to be these unrecognized statelets, um, which are sort of quasi-Russian, but but not officially. And to some degree, it's hard to say like what Russia gains from this. That's why the question now is how far Russia's incursion is going to spread. What we've seen the U.S. and the British government's warning of for days now is that what they really want to do is just sort of march into Ukraine proper and try to depose the uh, Ukrainian government and replace it with a more uh, compliant one. 
I wouldn't say it's guaranteed that that's going to happen. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll have to see in the days to come. Today on the show, how many moves does Russia have left in Ukraine? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Part of the reason most observers aren't calling the conflict between Russia and Ukraine a war yet is that fighting in this region is not new. Ever since Ukraine's Revolution of Dignity eight years ago, these two countries, they've been battling over who controls what territory. So in 2014, mass protests broke out against the government of Viktor Yanukovych over his pro-Russian, anti-European drift, and they forced him to flee the country. And uh, in the sort of chaos that followed, first Russia came in quickly and annexed uh, the Crimean Peninsula, which is a traditionally Russian-speaking region. And also these protests broke out in several cities in eastern Ukraine, uh, encouraged by Russia. And, you know, separatist militias, particularly in this Donbass region, were able to seize control over a sort of chunk of Donetsk and Luhansk. And uh, they declared their independence. They held a referendum, which wasn't recognized by any other country, including Russia. And so they've been sort of de facto independent, but unrecognized ever since. So to end this conflict that started in 2014... Both Ukraine and Russia signed on to these Minsk agreements. What did those agreements do? Right. So Minsk, the Minsk agreements were a ceasefire deal where basically in exchange for an end of the fighting and for Russia withdrawing its support for the separatists, Ukraine agreed to grant more autonomy, more political autonomy to these regions. And it should be noted that Russia kind of had to twist the arm of the separatists into signing this because they don't want to be part of Ukraine under any sort of new deal. They wanted to be part of Russia. But, you know, basically nobody upheld their uh, end of the Minsk agreements. Right. The fighting didn't stop, right? The fighting didn't stop. And Russia kept sending people in. Mm -hmm. Russia kept sending people in. And it's true also that Ukraine did not take the steps that they agreed to to grant more autonomy to these regions. And the reason they didn't do that is they feel that if they did that, uh, it would basically sort of give these Russian proxies influence in Ukraine's internal politics. So no one was happy. Nobody was happy. This was a deal the Ukrainians only agreed to because they were kind of losing on the battlefield at the time. I think that's a thing sometimes people miss. I mean, uh, we've started paying attention to this region in the past few weeks. But, um, you know, as the uh, Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, said in in a recent speech, like, look, the war in Donbass, which is what this uh, larger region is called, 
uh, has been going on since 2014. Uh, 14,000 people have been killed in this conflict. Uh, and, you know, uh, there are hundreds of ceasefire violations that happen every year. And so, um, you know, e- even though uh, people are paying attention to this more now because of this Russian troop buildup we've seen in recent weeks, it's not like this is a new conflict. But this is a conflict that's escalating. In the past few days, Russia has been simultaneously ramping up shelling in these disputed regions and seeming to lay the groundwork for a larger invasion. To do that, they're staging false flag attacks. These are incidents designed to look like provocations from Ukraine that demand a Russian response. We've been seeing warnings for a while that there would be false flag operations that that basically Russia would blame Ukraine for some act of violence against the separatist regions. And, uh, you know, Putin has go, gone so far as to say that uh, Ukraine is planning a genocide uh, against Russian speakers in this region. And we have seen an uptick in violence. There are several incidents. There was a shelling of a kindergarten on the uh, Ukrainian control side of the line. This kindergarten is less than three miles from the so-called line of contact, the front line. And witnesses in this area said that around eight or nine o'clock this morning, they started to hear shelling. It was loud enough that they could hear the whistle of the shells going by, and two of them landed here at this kindergarten. Let's take a look. This is actually a children's playground. And if you just turn over here, you can see this is a crater. And the local authorities are telling us that this is where the other shell hit. What we haven't seen is the Ukrainian military making concerted efforts to respond to this violence. And I think what they really don't want to do is make the mistake that Georgia made in 2008 and take some action that would give uh, Russia pretext for an all-out invasion. Wasn't there an allegation of a Ukrainian-planted car bomb? Yeah, I mean, there have been a few explosions uh, in the separatist-held regions, which the separatists have blamed on Ukraine, which Ukraine says were false flag attacks. You know, I mean, it's a little hard to believe that, you know, basically the Russian narrative here is that after eight years of not attacking these regions, not trying to retake control of Donetsk and Luhansk, that Ukraine would choose a moment when there are 150,000 Russian troops parked right on the other side of the border to do so. It strains credulity. It strains credulity. I mean, people have made, made bad decisions before, but uh, uh, it's hard to believe uh, the Russian narrative that this is the moment that um, Ukraine would choose to make its all-out assault. Do we know what Vladimir Putin's goal is here? Because there are so many of them that have been on the table, whether it's keeping Ukraine out of NATO, whether it's subsuming Ukraine as part of Russia. Like, what would satisfy him? Do we even know? Yeah, well, you know, Vladimir Putin has on several occasions suggested that Ukraine is not a real country. He actually said it in those words to George W. Bush. And there was an interesting essay he posted on the Kremlin website over the summer where he, you know, he went back as far as, you know, Kievan Rus in the 10th century to, you know, argue that Russians and Ukrainians are really sort of one people and occupy the same spiritual space. Now, when he says that, I don't think he means that Russia 
is literally going to swallow up Ukraine, that they're going to be one country again. Uh, I don't think he wants that. He acknowledges that's not going to happen. I think the ideal outcome for him is a sort of pliant Ukrainian government that basically takes its marching orders from Russia. This is kind of the arrangement he has in Belarus now, or, or, or more recently in Kazakhstan. Basically, governments that are dependent on Russia and do what he says and are in the Russian security orbit. Meanwhile, the U.S. is trying to combat Russia's advances not with troops, but with intelligence, which they are publicizing quickly. The idea here is to anticipate and expose Putin's moves before he makes them, and maybe to deter him in the process. Josh says the downside of this strategy is that if an attack got averted, Americans could seem alarmist for predicting something that never materialized. But it looks like that is a risk Biden is willing to take. I think that uh, what the U.S. is trying to do is to remove uh, Russia's ability to use pretexts for an invasion. It's saying, look, here's what they're going to try to do and, you know, don't believe it. And I think there are a couple things to keep in mind here. I mean, one, the U.S. has been very clear that it's not going to send troops into Ukraine. It's warning about Russia sending troops into Ukraine. So maybe that will or won't happen. But uh, unless the U.S. government completely reverses itself, it's not the one building a pretext for war here. Um, you know, secondly, I, I think that if if this really happens, if uh, it turns out that they're going to stop with Donetsk and Luhansk, they don't march on Kiev, that they don't embark on any kind of wider war. Sure, the, you know, Russian media and the Russian government will say that uh, the U.S. was being alarmist, that this was all hype, that, you know, you can't believe them. And I think the U.S. government will be absolutely fine with that. Hmm. Because they'll feel like they averted something. Right. If, if, if no war happens and, you know, they get to call us chicken littles here, uh, fine. That's a great outcome for everybody. Do we know over the next few days how likely it is that this conflict will escalate, that it will become a full-scale invasion of Ukraine? Yeah, I'm not even going to touch the prediction because I think a lot of people who are, uh, you know, predicted that Russia was going to start bombing Kiev uh, a few days ago are now patting themselves on the back for predicting this completely different thing that happened. But um, it, it could happen. I mean, I I, I think that uh, in some of the statements we've seen that there's been indications that uh, they're not going to stop with just these regions that they want to push on farther. You know, the U.S. government is still saying that they believe Russia's planning an all-out assault on Kiev. So, you know, if, if they're correct, uh, that, that might happen. You know, when I talk to security experts, nobody gives the Ukrainian military much of a chance of defeating Russia in an outright war. Um, I think what you could see is that this could turn into a sort of long-term insurgency. I think that uh, Ukrainian civilians could take up arms against Russia. Other countries, including the U.S., could back that insurgency. And uh, this really could turn into a sort of long and bloody conflict. And if that could happen, I think it's going to be devastating. I think we're going to see large numbers of civilian casualties. I think we could see urban warfare in cities in Ukraine. One thing that scares me 
is that the Russian government may not realize this. I think that uh, they may sometimes believe their own propaganda. They might think that Ukrainians are really just Russians that uh, are going to welcome the Russians as liberators. And uh, I think that they may underestimate what they're in for, and that that could get us into a, a very awful and bloody conflict. We'll be right back. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So over the weekend, we saw this ramp up where... There were these false flag attacks and then footage of, quote unquote, peacekeeping forces from Russia breaching the border with Ukraine. And there was this question of how the U.S. government would respond. Tuesday afternoon, President Biden held a press conference. This is the beginning of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, as he indicated and asked permission to be able to do from his Duma. So I'm going to begin to impose sanctions in response far beyond the steps we and our allies and partners implemented in 2014. And if Russia goes further with this invasion, we stand prepared to go further as with sanctions. He called what happened the beginning of an invasion, which I thought was kind of interesting because it was kind of having it both ways. It was saying it's an invasion, but it's not a complete invasion. I wonder what you made of that. It's a tricky dilemma that the U.S. government is in because if you uh, go too hard right now, if you if you apply like all the sanctions in the U.S. toolkit, then you have fewer measures left in reserve if Russia escalates further. So you basically want to preserve some deterrence. Uh, on the other hand, if you don't do anything, then Russia could read this as, you know, they've been given the green light. Like, no, you didn't do anything when we did this. Maybe we could do a little more. So I, I think what Biden's trying to do right now is kind of strike a balance. Like, 
we want to make clear that there were consequences to what Russia is doing, but uh, we also want to signal that we could still do more if uh, Putin decides to escalate it further. How does what the U.S. is doing compare to what other countries in Europe are doing? Like, I was surprised to wake up and realize Germany had put a halt on the gas pipeline that was running through Ukraine. Yes. So Nord Stream 2 is, I think, the biggest political development. This was a pipeline that resulted from a deal that actually Angela Merkel, the previous German chancellor, signed in 2015. This would double the amount of uh, Russian gas that is exported to Germany. And uh, it's something that Germany has been very reluctant to play politics on, uh, despite strong urging from the U.S. Uh, It's only in recent days that uh, the German chancellor has suggested he would do this. You know, Germany depends on Russia for about half of its natural gas, and it's only become more dependent uh, in recent years. It's tried to phase out its coal and nuclear power. So this is a big deal for them, both for their energy mix, for their economy, and uh, people have been suggesting that Germany is maybe softer on Russia than some of its partners. For instance, it hasn't want to sell weapons directly to Ukraine. So it's really a, a big sign to me uh, that today they're willing to take this step. One thing you pointed out, though, in some of your writing is that the fact that Germany seems willing to cut off this tie with Russia, it shows how far they're willing to go but it could have the impact of pushing Russia closer to China. And of course, I think a lot of people are thinking that Russia may not have gone as far in Ukraine as they have without assurances of Chinese support. I wonder how you think about that and the trade-off of that. Right. So if uh, one development from a few weeks ago that was interesting in light of this was Vladimir Putin was the most high-profile world leader to visit China for the opening ceremonies of the Winter Olympics. He did this at a time when uh, most Western leaders were boycotting over um, China's human rights records. And Putin and Xi held a face-to-face meeting, which you knew was a big deal because this is the first foreign leader that Xi has met in person since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. So in Hmm. concert with this meeting, uh, they announced a host of new energy deals, including a new pipeline that will take gas from eastern Russia into China. They issued this big communique where they supported each other's positions uh, on, on NATO expansion and on Taiwan. So I think a way to read this was, you know, Russia is saying, look, right now we're dependent economically on selling our gas to Europe. But uh, that's not the future. The future is is East. The future is deepening trade ties with China. And I, I think the hope is that, uh, you know, this sort of increasing trade between Russia and China can kind of sanction proof the Russian economy that uh, even if they're cut off from markets in Europe, that they can still sell to China. You made this interesting point in some of your writing about Ukraine that like back in the 19th century, it was kind of common for countries to get swallowed up by their neighbors, their bigger, stronger neighbors. But it's uncommon now. And that's because of this 21st century understanding of how countries behave. 
And that when you look at what's happening right now with Ukraine and how Russia has pushed the envelope before, it's really a reassessment of what it means to be a nation state right now. And I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit more and and explain the bigger story you see here. Yeah, I mean, outright conquest has become pretty rare. And and when it does happen, there's usually a pretty strong international response to it. You can think about when Iraq uh, tried to annex Kuwait in 1990. Basically, the U.S. and its allies came in and, and defeated Iraq in a war, which became the first Gulf War. Um, Russia's kind of not totally overturned that norm against territorial conquest, but has gradually weakened it. It can get away with that because unlike Iraq, it's a big, powerful superpower with nuclear weapons and people are a lot less anxious to challenge it. And also because it kind of pays lip service to these international norms. What do you mean? You know, Russia doesn't come in and just say, we're conquering parts of Ukraine. What it says is, you know, Crimea held this referendum on their own. We had nothing to do with it. And we are recognizing the results of that referendum. So we're here for freedom. We're we're just backing them. And, and I think that, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes it seems like Vladimir Putin loves to uh, point out Western hypocrisy. I feel like he's the most, you know, he might be the world's foremost student of uh, Western hypocrisy. So when he does things he's like... He's a really sharp observer of it. Like, I feel like he almost knows us better than ourselves. Right. So when, he's, when he says things like, you know, Ukraine is planning a genocide in eastern Ukraine, uh, we're just sending in peacekeepers. You know, I, I think what he's using is like the kind of language that the U.S. has used to justify its interventions in places like, take your pick, uh, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan. He says, you know, we're just coming in to, you know, support these um, poor oppressed people on the ground in eastern Ukraine. And, you know, if if we uh, end up annexing their territory, it's only we're just recognizing the sort of democratic aspirations of, uh, you know, people on the ground in these regions. And it may all be nonsense. It is, all, for in large part, it is all nonsense. But I, I think he's very deliberately using the kind of language that uh, we often hear from Western governments when they uh, justify their own military interventions. And so what he's doing is gradually weakening these norms against international conquest. And in some ways, that may be more dangerous because when you just outright break the law or break a norm, you're going to get, you know, the international community might come down on you like a ton of bricks. Um, I think when you gradually weaken it, uh, it's easier for countries to avoid retaliation against you. And as a result, these norms just start to mean less and less. You know, the last thing President Biden said as he wrapped up his press conference on Tuesday was, I'm hoping diplomacy is still available. And then he walked off and he didn't take a single question. Is diplomacy still available here? Oof. Yeah, it's, it, it just got a lot harder. Um, a few days ago, I, I was still talking to people who said there could be a silver lining through all this, because after all, like the current you know, security architecture in Eastern Europe is a little out of date. You know, maybe we could uh, 
you know, figure out some wiggle room on the Minsk agreements, find out a a compromise that, um, you know, leaves both Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine feeling more secure, but also respects Ukraine's sovereignty. It was possible to imagine those agreements. It's a lot harder now. Um, the best we could probably hope for at this point is, is some kind of agreement that just leaves the status quo in place. You know, I, I, I don't think there's much hope of Ukraine regaining control over these separatist regions in the near future. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Like, is there any way Ukraine gets out of this without essentially Russia taking a chomp out of its territory? Yeah, I mean, these are called frozen conflicts for a reason. I mean, no, nobody, uh, I, I think the most likely outcome is these sort of remain in limbo, these places. You know, honestly, the, the best we could hope for right now is is tensions die down we avoid an all-out military conflict in Ukraine proper, but you know that means that there's there's not much chance of Ukraine actually uh, regaining control of these regions, and and Ukraine is never going to admit that. The U.S. government and its allies are never going to admit that, but uh, I I think deep down everybody knows it. Does that mean Putin won? Well. No, <laughs> I don't think so. Why? Putin's goal was never to obtain control over Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, Putin's goal is to keep Ukraine, and by that I mean all of Ukraine, out of NATO. Including Kiev. Including Kiev, to keep it in Russia's security orbit. This is going to have the opposite effect. Ukraine might not join NATO, but the people of Ukraine are only going to be more anti-Russian. You know, polls show that Ukrainians have become more anti-Russian. They've only wanted to become part of European institutions more so. I think defense cooperation between Ukraine and Europe is only going to deepen further in the uh, years to come. So, you know, congrats, Vladimir Putin. You got Donetsk and Luhansk. You lost the rest of Ukraine. I wouldn't take that deal. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mary. Anytime. Josh Keating used to cover the globe for Slate, but now you can find him over at Grid. Go check out his reporting at grid.news. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Carmel Del Shad, Elena Schwartz, and Mary Wilson. We are led by Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. Say hi. Pitch me a story. I'm at Mary's desk. I will be back in your feed bright and early tomorrow morning with more What Next. I'll catch you then. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.